Did you know the word Trinity is not in your Bible? So why do Christians believe in the Trinity? (laughs) And it's interesting, did you know the Unitarians tell Christians the word Trinity doesn't appear in the Bible, and therefore that's why you shouldn't believe this. But, um, and by the way, they're right in that statement, because it doesn't exist in your Bible, the word Trinity. Although the word Trinity is not there, certainly the doctrine of the Trinity is certainly there. And uh, in fact, we even see it right here in Ephesians chapter 1. Not the word, but the truth. In fact, uh, remember uh, all the way from verse 3 to 14 is one long Greek sentence. One very long extended sentence. And what, what the Apostle Paul is doing here, he just seems to be uh, piling one great truth upon another. And the whole point of this is his desire is to express adequate praise to God. That's why he starts with the word blessed. He's given this eulogy, if you will. Still, there is certainly obvious progression in these phrases that we see here, and that's why I'm breaking this up into actually three different messages. We've looked at the Father's plan from verse 3 to 6. Father's plan of salvation. Today we're going to see what is Christ's mission God the Son's mission, and then uh, next week, Lord willing, we'll look at what is, what's the Holy Spirit's work? What is He doing in all of this? Anyway, but the, the, the work of the Father is, is primarily stated there in those, those first uh, four verses, 3 through 6. And then we have the work of the Son. We'll, we'll look at verses 7 through 10. And uh, then 11 through 14 is, is the work of the Holy Spirit. So today we're primarily thinking about what is Christ's mission? What did he come to accomplish? Why did he come to earth? What was his role? Well, certainly uh, all three persons of the Trinity, the Godhead, uh, were involved in the work of redemption, the work of salvation. But Christ's role is central in this particular text. And so the work of the Father was primarily in, in planning our salvation, the work of the Holy Spirit applies that, that uh, plan and that work to the individual's life. And Christ's work was to achieve salvation. How did he do that? He achieved salvation through his death and the resurrection. So let's read God's words, the words of the living God here from Ephesians 1 verse 7. Ephesians 1 verse 7 says, In him, that's in Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will. According to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in Him, things in heaven, and things on earth. So the proposition for you from this text today is the same as the one that was talking about God the Father. See, God wants you to praise Him. And He's going to show you some benefits, particularly in relation to Christ and His person and work, various benefits here. And these benefits, as we look at them, should cause us to praise God. 
So let's look at uh, three benefits. First of all, what are the benefits of reclamation? Reclamation. Well, the first one mentioned here in verse 7 is redemption. God has reclaimed a people for himself, and he's done this through redemption, because he says in verse 7 that, uh, verse 7 says, talking about in Christ, we have redemption, and it is through his blood. So what is this? Well, redemption is a great word. It's a theological word. It's in your Bible, and you need to understand this, because it involves the payment of a ransom to reclaim something that is being held captive. See, every unbeliever is held captive. Every Christian at one point was held captive. And so this this word means to loose. Literally, it means to loose. You're setting free. You are delivering someone from captivity. And this was accomplished by the payment of a price. See, This didn't happen by just an accident. It required a purposeful price being paid. Now here's an encouraging thought for Christians. For it is not merely that uh, we are just bought from the marketplace of sin, never to return there again. But see, a person, uh, even in Bible times, could be bought on a slave block, never be sold on that slave block again, but for the rest of their life continue as a slave, never being free. But this is not what Jesus does for us. See, Jesus, He pays the price. He sets you free from the slave market. And and you're permanently set free. Because He bought you. And this is what enabled uh, various hymn raiders to write some amazing hymns. And and, uh, one of my favorites is a hymn written by Charles Wesley. The title of the hymn is And Can It Be? And in one of the verses, here's what what he says. Look at these precious words, because he says, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, Fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. You see the point he's making. Charles Wesley understood the truth of redemption. It was was a wonderful benefit. And, and, And caused him to praise God because of that truth. But if you don't understand why you need someone to pay the price to free you from the slave market, then you're not going to praise him. Why do we need redemption? One word, my friend. Sin. You're a sinner. Your your very nature is sin. See, what does sin do? See, sin takes away the righteousness that God intended to characterize our very lives and, and holds us hostage to Satan's purposes. And so apart from Christ's provision, 
we would perpetually exist in a prison of guilt and shame. Is there any hope of escape? Is there any hope? Yeah. Now, you can't escape by your own actions. No way. You, it, by yourself, in and of yourself, you have no hope. And, but there is, there is hope here. You can't escape by your actions. And you say, well, why is that? Well, you're, you're too tainted by your own sin. You have to be rescued from this sinful state by something that is outside of you. You need someone to pay this price for you. You say, well, how much did it cost Christ? Well, look at verse 7, because it mentions the price right there, that in Him we have redemption. What's the price? It's through His blood. And that, that's just a, uh, what is it, a euphemism, I guess, saying that Christ had to die. It, because that's, all, it's that's the way it's always been. Romans 6 tells us the wages of sin is death. There had to be a death to pay the price, because that's the way God designed it. So the price of our ransom is the sacrifice of God's own Son. By the gift of His life, we are freed from our captivity to sin. And so this redemption here is tied to Christ's shed blood that He gave willingly on the cross. The Apostle Peter also talks about this. I love the way he puts this. So look at this. He says in 1 Peter 1, verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed or redeemed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but how, notice, Peter tells you how the ransom was paid. How did how you were redeemed? He said it's, with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So, so the first part of this wonderful benefit of reclamation is redemption. There's a second part. The second part is remission. See, it, it's, it, it gets even better. There is now remission because it says, it goes on there in verse 7, it, it talks about the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. So what is remission? What is remission? Well, think of it this way, my friends. When you remit something, you cancel a debt, or you are removing the penalty that you owe. And this is what Christ does. He removes the penalty. He cancels your debts. And so because of Christ's death for us, we no longer have a penalty to pay. So you say, well, remission of what? Uh, a cancel of a debt, a removal of this penalty? What, what's my problem? Well, again, notice it, it mentions your, your sins or your trespasses are your greatest problem here. You say, well, what's a trespass? Well, surely you know what a trespass is, right? You ever seen those signs, no trespassing? Prosecute, you know, trespassers will be prosecuted, right? You've seen those signs. Well, what happens when you trespass? Well, it just means you've crossed someone's boundary. You've crossed a boundary and you've done it without permission. So we trespass when we cross boundaries that God has set for us, when God has told us to obey and stay within something, and then we, we turn off that path, go our own way, We've trespassed. 
And since we all have all done this, by the way, what hope do we have? We're all trespassers. And we're going to be prosecuted. The omniscient one knows we've crossed the boundary. So we need the blood of Christ, which deals with our trespasses then. And this is good news because Christ's blood redeems us in two ways. Christ's blood pays that penalty, cancels that debt in two ways. First of all, it redeems us from the original sinfulness of our human nature. Because this is the state we're born in, right? You're you're born as a sinner. You're in that state. You're in that position. But it, it also frees us from the guilt of our daily sin. So praise God, every dimension of my sin has been covered under the blood of my Savior. So my sins, past, present, and future, have all been dealt with some 2,000 years ago. That's what remission is. It's a wonderful benefit. So my friend, God wants you to know how vast His mercy is. It's worthy of your praise. And please note that forgiveness here, notice what it says. It is according, the end of verse 7, it is according to what? It's according to the riches of His grace. Please note, it is in accord with His grace, not out of the riches of God's grace. You say, well, what's the point? Here's the point. See, the one who possesses all the riches of the universe does not reach into some little coin purse and grab a few cents out. (laughs) No, it's way better than that. He's not providing just a little grace to cover some of my sin. See, no, His grace is so big, so vast, so wonderful, because it's according to His vast grace and riches. In other words, His mega wealth is being lavished on us, because that's what the next verse talks about in verse 8. He's lavished this upon us. So how does God lavish on us? The answer is, oh, this just keeps getting better and better. Because notice, He's lavished this upon us, His grace upon us, with what? All wisdom and understanding. In other words, God knows what He is doing. He's the God of all wisdom and understanding. And And He knows who you are He knows exactly how much grace you need. And despite his insight into me and into you, he still grants his grace. Oh, incredible, isn't it? In his wisdom, he knows more about my sin than I even know about myself. And he's wise enough to know what what, what I need to compensate for all of my wrong. So he understands my sin is going to require the blood of his son to cancel the debt. And he still redeems me and he forgives my sin so that I have Christ's own righteousness now imputed on my credit. That's what's on my account. If you think of it as a bank account and you have a huge debt, a massive debt, you are in the red and there's you could work your entire life and never get out of that. Christ takes that whole red, cancels that huge debt, and now you are incredibly rich because you're a co-heir with Jesus Christ. Let me illustrate this truth. I don't know how to 
there is no good way to do this. But uh, maybe this will help. Imagine, uh, I've heard of people adopting children under horrible circumstances, even adopting a child, say, for example, with, uh, a child with fetal alcohol syndrome. And, of course, these people are doing this knowingly. They, they know exactly what they're doing. They're wise enough to know the background of the child and, and the parents. Uh, they know the result of, of a child with this type of syndrome. There's going to be lots and lots of problems. This poor child is enslaved to his very birth nature. The child's going to cost the parents a lot of time and a lot of money and a lot of heartache. They're going to pay for that child's future. But despite all of that that understanding and the insight, they offer themselves to one to whom they owe no obligation, they owe no debt to that child or the parents. They just simply give themselves... Why? They're, they're reclaiming this child from the horror of her background purely for the good of that child. Because they're not going to get anything out of it. So my friends, that hopefully illustrates exactly what God has done. Your Savior has given Himself to reclaim you, not because you're so awesome. <laughs> you have something far worse than fetal alcohol syndrome. But he's reclaiming us purely out of love and for the good of his child. And when he did, he paid your entire debt. And then he adopted you, and now you're mega wealthy. Again, the hymn writers often say it so well. So another one of my favorite hymns says it this way. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. But you look here in Ephesians, you might ask this question. I know what you're thinking. How do we know that God has provided the benefits of redemption and remission? This is some glorious truths here, right? How can I know 100% sure that God has actually provided this for me? The answer is that God has revealed them to us. And, And this is good because the benefits would have no motivational effect on our heart if we didn't know of them, right? How can you praise God if you don't even know this truth? So praise God. Here's what God wants you to do. He wants you to praise Him because He's revealed this truth to you. Look look at the benefits of revelation here in verse 9. Verse 9. Well, the first thing we see is that God's revelation is known to us. Because verse 9 says that He's making known to us the mystery of His will. Let me remind you what is a mystery. Okay, don't think Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie kind of mystery. See, a mystery is just a truth that was once hidden that is now being revealed. And it could not be seen before, but now it's something that you can see. It's something you can now understand. And so when the Apostle Paul says that the mystery's been made known, he signals to these people, the Ephesians, and to us today, 
that what the prophets had in, in anticipated, were looking forward to, has now been revealed. Praise God. And so, this is good news. We're, we're in a very special time. Because we get to understand some stuff that even the prophets didn't understand. This is, this is a wonderful benefit, is it, is it not? But there's, there's a second thing as we think about the benefits of God's revelation here, is that God's revelation it is special because it's His will. Again, verse 9 tells us this. It is, He's making known to us the mystery of what? What's the content of that mystery? It's His will. Do you want to know God's will for your life? Well, He's told you a lot of things of His will for your life. So what has God revealed? It is His will. And so that's the content of His revelation. And it's always been, by the way, it's always been God's plan to deliver His people by the grace and the power of Jesus Christ. That's always been the plan. Because we saw that way back in verses 3 and 4, didn't we? That's plan A, and there is only a plan A. God never changed his mind. It was before the creation of the universe. He chose to do it this way. But now we can see this, and, and this is a wonderful privilege. It's a great privilege. But some people look at this and they're like, okay, you know, particularly lawyers, you know, they're, they're always looking for the fine print. They're looking for the conditions. They want to know, you know, and it's, it's like as we're going around looking at properties, it's like, are there any covenants? Surely, surely, you know, there's something too good. You're, you're looking at something. You want to know, you know, you know the insurance agencies, surely, they, they're, they're finding the loophole to want to get out of something. Don't, you know, isn't that the way we think? And so some people look at this and they're like, man, this is just too good to be true. There's got to be some conditions or covenants or some fine print here that I'm just not getting. Well, here's, here's some good news. Number three, that God's revelation comes with no conditions. <laughs> no conditions. Look at verse 9 again. Because he's making known to us the mystery of, the, of his will. And it's according to lots of covenants and conditions and fine print stuff, right? That's not what it says. No, it's according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. Oh, that's good news. So there's none. There is absolutely none. God's revelation is according to his good pleasure. In other words, that's just it. Those are amazing words. See, God revealed salvation to his people simply because it brings him pleasure. He loves this stuff. Clearly, he delights to show mercy. And there is no work or, or merit that is the condition of him doing this. It, you see, some people, they, some theologians who act like, try to act like theologians have said, see, God's looking down through the corridors of time, and he's looking at your awesomeness, and you're just so wonderful, and he can't resist you, so he chooses you because you're so amazing. Really? No, that's not what it says. He's just choosing to, to show mercy because of his own good pleasure, not, nothing to do with us. So what in us makes us worthy to receive that, that revelation? Don't miss this point. What? The answer is nothing. Nothing. Our privilege is all from His grace. 
And this, this is a truth that should humble you. <laughs> Certainly humbles me. See, I have nothing good in and of myself that God is interested in. Nothing to offer Him. Nothing whatsoever. And strangely, uh, this truth doesn't always humble people. <laughs> Sometimes it actually has the opposite effect. And some people look at this and they think, and they become proud and they get this big head and they get puffed up and think they're better than other people. They're, uh, I'm not better than the unbeliever. And so they fall into doctrinal pride when they start to know these kind of truths. And so we can puff ourselves up with self-importance because we know what other people don't know. The question is, why do we know anything about redemption? How do you know anything about redemption? Because God's revealed it to you. That's the benefit here that should cause us to praise Him. The only reason you know anything is because God has shown it to you. It's not because we have some superior understanding or you have a higher IQ or you're better than someone else. All, we, all, all that we understand is, is only because of God's gift. See, I know about Christ only because God's let me know about Christ. And therefore, we should praise God for His revelation. So we praise God, number one, for His reclamation. For his revelation, and number three, there's a third reason to praise God. It's because of the benefits of God's rule. The benefits of God's rule. Verse 10 is talking about God's rule here, as it, as it mentions this, this plan for the fullness of time. And what, what is God doing here? Notice it's, it's to unite all things in him. So it's God's will. To unite all things. He will unite all things. He, he hasn't done this yet. But one day He will. And He's going to bring together heaven and earth. He's going to answer Jesus' model prayer. Remember Jesus' model prayer in Matthew? Which is often called the Lord's Prayer. You remember what Jesus said that we should be praying for? That God's will should be done on earth as it is in heaven. Is that currently happening? No. <laughs> no. God's will is not being done on earth as it is in heaven. But one day it will. He's going to unite all things together so that heaven and earth is like united. And God's will is being done everywhere. Wow, that's cool. So heaven and earth and the domain of heaven and earth is going to be one. The will of God is going to be just as present on earth as it is there in heaven. Saints and angels are going to coexist together. How cool is that going to be? And then all believers in Christ are going to be reunited in glory. It'll be a wonderful day. That's a wonderful benefit of God's rule. A second thing we see here is that He will head all things. So not only is He... Do we see his rule here, bringing all things together, uniting all things into one? But he's the head. In other words, he's the, the top dog, the chief, whatever you want to call him. Because these are all things in heaven and things on earth. So this is a united kingdom, if you will. And this united kingdom is going to exist in submission under King Jesus. And as you enter the, the, by the way, 
this is interesting because as I was studying about Ephesus, the city of Ephesus, you, you can walk into the ruins today of the city of Ephesus, what, what's left of the ancient city of Ephesus, and you're going to see remnants there of a statue depicting the Roman emperor Trajan, and he has his foot on the globe of the world. My understanding is, as I've been told about this, that actually all that remains is Trajan's foot. <laughs> That's it. And of course, he's long gone, and, and much of that, uh, the statues and stuff have been destroyed, but his rules, of course, gone, his rules ended. He never actually accomplished what he was boasting about in that statue. Never completed it. Never became reality. But here's reality. The Holy Spirit tells us what is reality in Philippians chapter 2, verse 10. Look at this. Here's what the Holy Spirit says, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess. Notice what they're confessing about Jesus, the true identity of Jesus. Jesus is not a lunatic. Jesus is not a liar. Jesus is Lord. And as C.S. Lewis said, if he's Lord, the proper response is to bow down and worship. And that's what they're doing here. Because every tongue is confessing that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And at the present time, sadly, the universe is anything but that. The universe is not unified under King Jesus. In fact, you, as you know, it's corrupted, divided, it's splintered. And even the Bible tells us that Satan is now the ruler of this world. But in, in this day, when this comes, the ruler of this world is going to be cast out, Jesus said. He and all those demons are going to be cast into a place that has been prepared for them. Jesus said he has prepared the lake of fire for Satan and those demons. And they're going to be put there. During the millennium, they're going to be put into a pit. At the end of the millennium, they'll be released for a while, and then eventually they'll end up all eternity in that lake of fire. And so when every trace of evil's been disposed of, here's the good news. God's going to establish this incomparable unity. It's based in himself. and is dealing with all these things that are remaining. That's the inevitable goal of the universe. That's reality. During the millennium and the eternal state, there will be no corner of this world, no corner, no, no little dark spot of the universe where Jesus' rule will not extend and won't reach. See, today we have places where there's no cameras, right? And, and, and people do their evil and their wickedness and, and they don't get caught. But King Jesus knows everything. He doesn't need cameras, CCTV, and whatever you want to call it. He doesn't need satellites. He'll know everything. His rule extends to every space. And so what does God reveal to us? Well, what does God reveal to us? It's the ultimate mystery. It's this ultimate mystery here. And the good news is we are a part of his plan. See, the purposes of God are our purpose. See, if you're part of the plan, that makes you, you, you have purpose, you have meaning then, don't you? See, God's reclamation of his people is not purposeless. 
this is good news. Because people want purpose. They want meaning in life. Our destiny is essential to all that's going to come to pass, and, and then, then we're to live in accord with that purpose even now. So what this means is that it's now our mission to live out the purposes of God. We're to seek to unite all things. We're to submit even now to the Lordship of Christ. Do it now. Let's just get practical for a moment, okay? We're to serve Christ, right? He's the head of all things, as we see here. And so as we serve Christ, then we're to be active reconcilers, even now, in this life. We're to be working past our differences. And this is one of the points that the Apostle Paul is telling us this truth. This should have an effect on the church. Because theology always drives your methodology. Always. And so, we're to be working past those differences so that the unity provided by the gospel is now present in our relationships. At a personal level, this means we're to confess our sins to one another, James tells us. It means you're to forgive one another. It means to to reconcile with people with whom you have differences. It doesn't mean to ignore them. Some of you may have, have seen these, these truths that we've been learning uh, in our family and, and some of the teachers have been teaching the children. See, there's two pendulum swings when you deal with conflict. See, one is you run away from the conflict. It's called escape. <laughs> run away from it or you just clam up and, and, and don't deal with it. That's one sinful way to deal with conflict. The other sinful way to deal with conflict is the other way. You fight. You fight. You attack. Well, God says neither one of those options are correct. You come and you be reconciled, even with people with whom you're different. That means the Jews were to reconcile with Gentiles. Gentiles were to reconcile with Jews. Asians reconciling with Europeans, or however you want to... However, the, the... the, the masters reconciling with their slaves, right? Various ways that ne- their reconciling needed to be taken place. So disunity among God's children is something that should not be tolerated. Family members shouldn't be fighting with each other. Guess what? If you're a child of God, you're a family member with other brothers and sisters in Christ. And so at a church level, we must be committed then to Lots of different kinds of reconciliation. That includes even racial reconciliation. We, we, we need to be committed to cultural diversity. I don't, I don't mean that in a weird, funky, bad way, okay? But see, hopefully, hopefully when, when a Christian, you meet another Christian, it doesn't matter what their skin color is. Doesn't mean or doesn't mean or what their, it doesn't matter what their ethnicity is or their social standing in life. Uh, you know, how smart they are or whatever it is, you're to be united to that brother and sister. We want to be what God has purposed in Christ. And so at every level, this means we seek to find ways to bridge those differences, to, to overlook our faults. Sometimes it also means we have to confront each other, of course, in a loving way, because that's what brothers and sisters do. 
But not only is it our purpose then to unite all things under Christ's headship here, but we're also submitting all things to Christ's lordship. We're to be doing this even now. See, it's our purpose to be involved in redeeming the whole of life for the glory of Christ. Paul says it another way in Corinthians when he says, see, it doesn't matter if I'm even doing mundane things in life like eating and drinking. Even doing those things should be done to the glory of God. So we must refuse to separate the secular away from the sacred, which is something that was been taught down through church history for a long time. Don't separate the secular away from the sacred. Everything is sacred. Everything is sacred. In fact, I love the way uh, Abraham Kuyper said it. Abraham Kuyper put it this way. He was, um, uh, what was he, the prime minister of, of the Netherlands at one point. Uh, I think he said it this way. He said, there is not one square inch of this world over which Jesus does not stand and say, this is mine. That's true. It's all his. And it should be in submission to him. Therefore, we believe that the influence of Christ is then rightly expressed throughout all of culture. That, By the way, that includes even the arts. It includes your business. It includes government. It includes the education system. It includes science. It includes all of society. All of society. Not one square inch of it exists outside of Christ. Jesus says, it's all mine. All mine. So what truth should we take away from these verses? Well, we should now have a keen awareness of these benefits that should bring, bring our hearts to praise God, shouldn't they? That's the point. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 3 says. And so we should have a keen awareness of, of what? Number one, redemption. You should have keen awareness of your forgiveness and the revelation that God has given. These things are ours, by the way, not because we're awesome, but because it's solely by the grace of God. It's unmerited favor. Further, we should be so gripped here by God's mercy toward us that that we're just going to delight to proclaim His grace. It just should overflow. Just a natural overflow of of just too much goodness I mean, imagine having a glass and just you just keep pouring water in the glass and of course the glass is just going to overflow with water that's what it does when it has too much that's what a christian should be doing just overflowing of god's grace and, and because it's his grace that we proclaim then we need to recognize hey now there's no barriers i have there's no barriers of of uh, cultural pride, no barriers of, I, I no longer have personal animosity toward you. You no longer have personal animosity toward me. But rather, I, I take personal responsibility now to express Christ's love and Christ's unity to my brothers and sisters. That's good news. And it's all because of God's grace. So may God enable us to praise Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for these wonderful riches we we see here in Christ. May they have the right effect. 
May they cause our hearts to be uplifted and, and to exult and praise you and to worship you because you're worthy of all of this praise. So may blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Thank you for doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. We have so many wonderful benefits that have been mentioned here. So may we understand these things. Please open our spiritual eyes that we would behold wonderful things from your word and then live out this doctrine in a very practical way. They have an effect on our our methods and how, how we live even. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.